Good morning again. Scripture text, our sermon text for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 25. You can find that on page 708 of the, the Bibles in the back. If you, uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, or if you forgot to bring your Bible this morning, you're welcome to grab one from there and use it. If you don't own a Bible at all, uh, you're welcome to take that Bible, write your name in the front, keep it as your own, and then bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. Even, even before we pray, I'm going to pray in just a minute, but even before we pray, let me say, you know, the past couple weeks, like Matthew 23, Matthew 24, Matthew 25, uh, are really weighty. And uh, maybe you've noticed that if you've been here. Uh, and, and let me say, if you have questions about anything that I say in the sermon, you are always free to come up afterwards and chat with me and talk with me and pepper me with your questions. And uh, I'd love to discuss these things further if you're interested. So Matthew 25 is our text this morning. Let me pray for us, and then I'll go ahead and read that. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that you speak to us in a way that we can understand, in a way that we can hear. Yet we also know that many times we come to your word and there are things in them hard to understand. In fact, uh, Peter even tells us that in the book of Second Peter. And... Uh, Father, I pray that you would help us to understand your word this morning, which is hard, maybe not so much because it's hard to comprehend, it's hard because it's, it's sometimes hard to receive. So we pray that you would give us humble hearts and that you would allow us to receive your word this morning, allow us to believe it by your Holy Spirit, and allow us, Father, to live in light of it in a way that brings you glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 25, beginning with verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. 
And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you, who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. Well, there are a couple of common approaches to Christian sort of of end-of-the-world scenarios. There are some people who are totally obsessed, and uh, they're consumed with kind of the end times, with the future, with Jesus' return. Uh, they make it their job to search out the most obscure prophecies of the Bible and try to find a one-to-one correspondence between that and events in the newspaper. 
On the other side, there's the skeptical approach, right? I mean, there are, there's the approach of, of disbelief. There are people, in fact, most of our culture thinks that this whole thing about Jesus coming back is just completely insane. It's kind of weird, delusional. Right? The thought of Jesus coming back is something out of a Terminator film. Uh, it's not science. It's science fiction. It's not reality. And then there's, uh, there's kind of a, a Christian agnostic approach, um, which is probably true of the vast majority of us who I think we, we try to take a kind of mediating position. I mean, we want to avoid the obsessive, obscure ravings of some, so we kind of distance ourselves from that group. But as Christians, we're not quite ready to say that Jesus isn't coming back, right? And so we say something like, well, I, I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't know when it's going to happen. I don't know what it's going to look like. That's the agnostic part, right? Uh, I just know Jesus is coming. And that's good enough for me. That's all I need to know. The result, though, is that for really each of these groups, Jesus' return is of no practical consequence in life. Day to day, Jesus' return really is irrelevant. I wonder where you fit on that scale, right? Uh, on the one hand, you have an unhealthy interest in the future, in judgment, and prophecy. On the other hand, are you pretty much incredulous, right? You, you have a hard time believing something that seems so fanciful. Or maybe you just think Jesus' return seems kind of obscure and distant and irrelevant. Well, Jesus' teaching on his return is, is not a call to obsess over the future. It's not a call to dismiss it either, but it's a call to live in the present in light of the future. Right? To live in the present in light of the future. And uh, Jesus' teaching on his coming is really always practically focused. It's always a part of an exhortation. Well, we've been working through the Gospel of Matthew for a while now. I don't think it's been a year, but it might have been. Uh, and we've been working through the Gospel of Matthew for a while now, and um, we come this morning to Matthew chapter 25. And there are three stories in Matthew chapter 25. We're going to take them as a whole. Uh, there are going to be lots of details maybe that you wish I would say, talk about with, that I'm just going to skip over for time's sake. We're going to look at these stories as a whole. And there are really three main things we're going to learn as we look at these stories. We're going to learn about the timing of Jesus' coming. We're going to learn about being ready for his coming. And we're going to learn about judgment at his coming. And uh, you can see that outline in your bulletin. It's on the back of your bulletin. There's a, just an outline, simple outline there. I think it just says timing, readiness, and judgment. So first we're going to talk about the timing of his coming. You know, the timing sometimes has been a source of embarrassment for Christians. You know, some people, uh, mostly non-Christians, but some Christians as well, uh, some people teach that Jesus thought he was going to come back right away. That it, was, it would be within the next couple of years. And uh, they say that he taught that in the Gospels, and therefore Jesus was wrong about his return. The problem is that that idea just doesn't hold water when you actually read what Jesus taught in its context. So Jesus tells three stories here in Matthew 25. The first two of them deal with the period of time leading up to Jesus' return. And uh, in the first story, right, there are uh, ten uh, virgins. They go out to meet the bridegroom for the wedding feast. Uh, apparently, they're going to be a part of sort of the, the wedding procession. And uh, verse 5 says this, as they wait, verse 5 says, 
As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. See, a key part of this parable is actually the delay in the bridegroom's coming. Then you have this second parable. A master is going on a journey, and he calls his servants. He entrusts them with some property. And then he goes away, and verse 19 says, Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. See, when Jesus talks about his return, he talks about things like a delay and being away a long time. Jesus is clearly teaching that there will be a long period of time before his coming. In fact, it will seem prolonged, right? When you hear the word delay, you don't think, right, okay, it'll be a couple years. No, it's, it's a delay. It's something that um, they, they thought it was going to be sooner than it was, but it was delayed, right? It was put off. And maybe you've wondered, right, when is Jesus going to come back? Uh, Maybe you've wondered if since it's taken so long, is his promise really true? Is he really going to come? Well, the delay actually is, is not a sign that Jesus isn't coming back. The delay is not a sign that his promises aren't true. In fact, the delay shows that everything is actually going according to his plan. That's exactly what he said. He said it would be delayed, Coupled with the delay, however, is the fact that his coming will be sudden, which seems contradictory, but, but look at, think about the parable of the ten virgins again, right? They waited so long, right? This delay just went on and on. They eventually fell asleep. And then someone calls out, here's the bridegroom, right? Come out to meet him. And you know what that, that is like maybe if you, uh, you're, you're sleeping soundly, This is especially true if you have kids, right? You're sleeping soundly, and suddenly someone starts yelling. And you sit up in an instant, right? There's this suddenness, right? Uh, This happened to Deborah and I, I think, two or three times when we lived in uh, Philadelphia. Not with someone shouting, but middle of the night, we get this pounding on our door. Someone comes to the door, and it's it's like 2 a.m., and someone is bam, bam. Both times it was a police officer, actually, because our car alarm was going off. But... um, (laughs) Yeah, it was bad. But, uh, but it was sudden, let me tell you. And uh, along with being sudden, it was completely unexpected. And even here, it's sudden and it's unexpected, right? It's delayed. They're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting. Eventually, they fall asleep. And then all of a sudden, the bridegroom comes. And it's totally unexpected because who would think that the bridegroom would come in the middle of the night? I mean, really, how many weddings have you been to that began at midnight, There was a delay. There was a delay for the bridegroom, but then all of a sudden and unexpectedly he arrives. Jesus' return will be delayed, but it will also be sudden and unexpected. And beyond that, Jesus simply says in in this chapter, again, he said it in last chapter, Jesus simply says, you do not know the day or the hour. He repeats himself, right? Just in case we didn't get it in chapter 24, you cannot know the day or the hour. Well, that's all we're going to say about timing. There's a delay, prolonged period of time, and then suddenly Jesus will return, and we don't know when that will be. Now we want to talk about being ready, and, and we're going to talk a lot more here. You know, these three stories each emphasize being ready for the coming, right? And each really builds upon the other as to what that means and what that looks like. So the parable of the ten virgins is really just an exhortation to be ready. 
You have these uh, 10 ladies. They're invited to uh, be a part of the wedding procession. And the day comes for that. They, they get ready, right? They got dressed. They get their lamps. And you might wonder why lamps, right? Why did they get lamps ready for this wedding procession? It's, it's possibly because uh, wedding processions in Jesus' day may have actually included people carrying long torches, and uh, it was a part of kind of the fanfare of the procession. The torches were part of the pomp and the circumstance, right? The beauty and the glory of the moment, right? There are these people carrying these torches. And uh, whatever the case, right, there are these five ladies whom Jesus calls foolish. They take no oil for their lamps or their torches. And then there are five, five whom Jesus calls wise because they do take oil for their torches. Uh, the night gets long. The bridegroom is delayed and the women fall asleep. Finally, the bridegroom comes. Uh, someone sees him coming. He wakes up the wedding party. They begin to trim their lamps or light their torches. And uh, suddenly the five foolish young women realize their foolishness. And they ask the five wise young women to share their oil. But they refuse. Now, again, if you, you might think that that's kind of harsh, like, why didn't they share, right? Doesn't Jesus talk about sharing? Well, if, if the torches were a part of the wedding procession, then the wise realize that if they share their oil, then all the torches are going to go out, right? And it's going to be a really lame procession, if, especially in the middle of the night, right, if all of their torches are unlit. So they're actually, it's, it's, they're not just being selfish, right? They're thinking about the whole procession and, and what this is going to mean. And so the foolish virgins then go off to buy oil, and while they're away, the bridegroom comes, and those who are ready go into the marriage feast. And the door is shut. When the foolish virgins finally get back, the bridegroom refuses to open the door to them. And Jesus' application is, watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. He says, you don't know when Jesus is coming back. Don't let the delay throw you off, right? Be ready. Watch. Now, what's most interesting about this parable is actually the fact that uh, the, the wise and foolish virgins are incredibly similar. And when we notice that, when we see how similar they are, we'll look at that in a moment. When we see that, we realize that this parable is really about all people who, who profess faith in Christ, who profess to be Christians, and some are ready for Jesus' return and some are not. And so uh, uh, one pastor, Dr. Uh, James Boyce, he lists seven similarities, and I'll just mention five of them, between the wise and the foolish virgins. He says, you know, uh, first, all had received an invitation to the wedding, which would be like, right, all of us have, all Christians have heard the call of the gospel. They've all responded positively to that invitation, these are people who professed faith in the gospel message, right? They responded positively to the message. All confessed Jesus as Lord. You see that in verse 11, particularly the, the foolish virgins. Call him Lord, Lord. All were waiting for the return of the bridegroom, as all Christians are waiting for Jesus' return. And all fell asleep when the bridegroom was delayed. Very similar up to a point, but some were ready and others were not. And the question, really, for this parable is simply, what about you? Are you ready? Now, maybe you've heard the gospel. Maybe you believe it on some level. You confess Jesus as Lord. You're waiting for his return. But are you ready for it? The parable is asking us. Some of the virgins were, and some of the virgins were not. 
What about you? Are you ready? Now, you, you maybe think, well, I don't know what readiness looks like. I mean, what more is there than all the things that you just mentioned? Believing the gospel, calling Jesus Lord, right? Waiting for his return. What more is there to that? Of course, that brings us to the next parable. The second parable is called the parable of the talents. It's called the parable of the talents because there's a man, he's going on a journey, he calls his servants to him, and he gives them each a large sum of money measured in talents, which is a little like measuring money by the bushel, because talent was a unit of, of measurement, like uh, a unit of uh, mass or quantity, right? It wasn't a, 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 wasn't a monetary value. And so even one talent would have been hundreds of thousands of dollars, And the master goes away, and he returns after a long time, and he calls his servants to give an account. And two of them had doubled their wealth in that time, and the third simply buried his talent and returned it to the master. The first two are commended by the master. The third is condemned as a wicked and lazy servant. Well, what does it mean from this parable to be ready for the master's return? What are we to do as we wait for Jesus? Jesus' answer really is it's quite simple. In this parable, it's, it's to be faithful with what Jesus has given to us. And, and note a couple of things about this. Uh, the master gave something to each of his servants. Just as God has given each one of us various abilities and strengths and gifts and resources and situations and opportunities and connections and families, whatever you have is a gift from Jesus your master. And notice also that the master did not give the same thing to each of his servants. He gave something different to each one. So to the one he gave five talents, to to another two, to another one, but we're told to each according to his ability. God God has not given you the same thing that he has given to others, right? You're a different person than the people next to you. One of the things that means is that we should never compare ourselves to others, especially when it comes to our service to Jesus, God may have called you and the person next to you to serve Jesus, but he has not called you to serve Jesus the same way he's called the person next to you to serve Jesus. You are called to be faithful with what you have been given, and they are called to be faithful with what they have been given. And so when the master comes to settle accounts, uh, the, the person who was given five talents comes to him. He says, here's the five that you gave me. Here's five more. And the master replies in verse 21, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The person with two talents that was given two talents comes forth. He says, look, here's the two that you gave me. Here's two more. The master replies in the exact same way in verse 23. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And notice that though the one person made five talents, the other person made two, the master gives them the exact same praise. Why does he give them the exact same praise? Well, because they were both faithful with what they had been given. It didn't matter how much one made or how much the other didn't make. It only mattered that each was faithful with what they had been given. And so often we look at others and we uh, look at other Christians and we say something like, well, if only I were doing that for Jesus, that's really what Jesus wants me to be doing for him. And we need to stop and ask ourselves, well, really? Uh, Because you're not that person, right? You're a different person. Jesus calls you to be you to use what he has given to you. 
He didn't give us all the same thing for a reason. I, I need to hear that maybe more than anybody in the room because, uh, you know, through, throughout my Christian life, at least, God blessed me with some incredible models for pastoral ministry. And uh, I, my temptation is to begin to think that I need to do what they did, uh, that I need to be who they are rather than simply use what God has given to me to be faithful to him. And that's true for each one of us, right? Our temptation often is to look at the people around us and say, ooh, that's what I should be doing. I need to be like that person, rather than think, okay, what has God given me and what is he calling me to do with that? Well, there's this other servant, right? There's the third servant in the parable. The third servant uh, did not use what his master had given him. He buried his talent out of fear. And, and this is one of those important points to, to note in these three parables. I mean, why weren't the other two servants afraid? Well, they, they knew their master was a gracious man. He, his love was not dependent upon their performance, so they are free to risk it all in service to him. The risk of, of giving their lives to his service was rewarded, right? It was really rewarded twofold. They, they saw the fruit from their work, then they received the joy of their master. But the third servant was afraid, he thinks his master is a hard man who expects too much, who takes what is not his. He doesn't want to risk anything because he doesn't want to take the chance that he might fail. So he buries his talent in the ground, and when the time comes, he returns it to his master. The master calls him wicked and lazy. Seems kind of harsh. If he really knew the master, though, the master says, if you really knew me, if you really knew that I was such a harsh man, if, if he knew that the master had impossible expectations, if he knew that the master took what was not his, then he could have at least put the money in a bank and gotten interest. But this wicked, lazy servant didn't even do the bare minimum. Which really means, come to find out, that fear is not what stopped him at all. It was laziness. Fear would have at least driven him to some safer activity like collecting interest in a bank. But this man was lazy and wicked because he was making excuses for his laziness by blaming the master himself. Well, what does God call us to do in light of these servants? What does he expect of us as we await the return of Jesus? He calls us to be faithful with what he has given to us, to use it in his service. Now, obviously, I can't tell you exactly what that's going to look like for you because every person in this room is different. But it does mean that you dedicate everything to him, that your skills, your relationships, your job, your family, everything is in service to your God. So if you're an artist, you serve him as an artist. If you're a computer programmer, you serve him as a programmer, right? If you're a student, you serve him as a student. If you're a stay-at-home mom, you serve him as a stay-at-home mom. If you're a garbage collector, you serve him as a garbage collector. Wherever you are, wherever God has placed you, you serve him faithfully there. Which brings us to the next story. We come to the next story, which itself is not a parable, but really just a prediction of what is going to happen. And when we ask the question, what does Jesus want of us as we wait for his return? What do we, what do we learn from this third story? What we often call the, the story of the sheep and the goats. Well, look at verse 31. 31 says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. 
and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. The king comes and he divides up the peoples of the earth. And what does he say? Verse 34, verse 34, he says, The king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And uh, the people that he's talking to don't understand this, right? When did this happen? I don't remember doing that, they say. And Jesus responds in verse 40, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. What does Jesus expect of us as we wait for his return? Well, he expects us to serve his people who are in need. Jesus says, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And by this phrase, my brothers, in the Gospel of Matthew, read through the whole Gospel of Matthew, look it up, right? Jesus always means his disciples. He always means his followers. And similarly, when Jesus talks about the least or the little ones throughout the Gospel of Matthew, he's always talking about his disciples. And so you put those two phrases together, the phrase, one of the least of these, my brothers, it seems clear that Jesus is referring to his own people. He's saying, in as much as you did this to, to my people, you did it to me. What are we to be doing as we await Jesus' return? Well, we're to be serving Jesus' people as they have need. Uh, that doesn't mean, by the way, of course, that we have an excuse not to serve other people. Paul says to do good to all men in Galatians chapter 6. But in particular... The way that we treat Jesus' people, especially when they are in need, is reflective of our attitude to Jesus himself, right? Our attitude toward Jesus is going to be reflected in our attitude toward one another in the church. Do we love and serve people in the church, not because we can get something from them, but simply based on their connection to Jesus, because they belong to him? And, and, of course, love is, is always found in the hard things, not in the easy, right? It's found in the messy things, not in the neat things. And so it's found in, in getting dirty for brothers and sisters who are in need, right? Serving them as we have opportunity. And so Jesus gets right to the point. When, when your brothers and sisters are in need, did you serve them for my sake? So we must be ready. We must be ready by using what we have been given We must be ready in showing our love for Jesus by serving his people. Which brings us to our last point, which is about judgment at his coming. You know, in each of these stories, uh, the story, the, the bridegroom, the master, the son of man comes at some point, and his coming brings a division. A division between the wise and the foolish virgins, a division between the faithful and the wicked servants, a division between the sheep and the goats. And again, first notice, right, that that those who formerly looked so similar, who were formerly indistinguishable, suddenly find themselves on either side, side of the aisle. Jesus' justice means that one day humanity will be divided into two. Two groups of people facing two very different ends. And I want to start with judgment because there's actually a certain emphasis on it in these stories. Each story ends with judgment, with condemnation. Uh, 
the foolish virgins come saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But Jesus answers them, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. See, they don't have a relationship to Jesus, and so they cannot enter into the feast. Or consider the unfaithful steward. The talent is taken from him. He's proven that he can't be profitable with it, so it's taken from him and given to someone else. And he himself is cast into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, a phrase which is full of sadness and despair. Or the goats. Right? The Son of Man will say to them, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Then finally he says these will go away into eternal punishment. Those who are not ready on judgment day, according to Jesus, he will not know them, but send them away to a place of darkness, weeping and fire, a place, he says, of eternal punishment. I feel like I have to stress this, even though I really have no desire to. But I feel like I have to because it's popular in Christian circles to deny the reality of punishment. Even, and even if you do accept that there may be some kind of punishment somewhere at the end, oftentimes it, it's not recognized uh, as being eternal. And so rather people substitute for, for eternal punishment either this doctrine of kind of something like purgatory where there'll be some temporary punishment that people will undergo, but ultimately there will be a restoration to God. Or what, what is called annihilationism, that those who reject God are simply annihilated. They're not eternally punished. And as, as maybe likable as those two views are, the problem is they're, they're just not what Jesus says. He says to the sheep, enter into eternal life. And he says to the goats that they will enter into eternal punishment. And the punishment is in proportion to the person that has been sinned against, just as crimes are in proportion to the government uh, that you've, whose law you've broken. And of course, in this sense, it's an infinite person who we have sinned against, which requires an infinite punishment be doled out. That's the sobering end right, of those who reject Jesus and are therefore not ready for his return. That's the, that's the teaching of Jesus on the subject of judgment. Of course, that's only one possible end, right? It doesn't end there, thankfully. There's another end that Jesus talks about. It's described by Jesus as a celebration. It's a place of joy and peace. The wise virgins go into the marriage feast. The end of history is often described as a feast, as a wedding, as a celebration of the union between Jesus and his people. To the good and faithful servants, the, the master says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. It's such an amazing benediction, right? To hear the words, well done. To be called good and faithful. I mean, what greater blessing can there be than the, than the approbation of God, right? The approval of the one who made us. You know, you know what it's like, right? When people criticize us and tear us down, it's crushing. It makes us fearful and sad and depressed and, and prickly. But when someone we love and respect in life compliments us, right? When, when they point out a job well done, it, it, we beam, right? With a legitimate pride, right? We, we feel that we, we can take on the world. Think about it. For God to say, well done, what glory, right? What joy to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, 
How those words would strengthen us and straighten our backs and give us confidence. Of course, that's not all, right? He sets him over much, which means that the reward for work well done is more work, which doesn't make any sense to us at all because we are trying to get out of work as much as possible. But the Bible seems to teach that those who do well in this life will receive greater responsibility in the life to come. And then we have this phrase, enter into the joy of your master, which could mean either you begin having joy as your master has joy, or you begin to receive your master's joy in you. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, either way, of course, the key is joy. Now, one day, Jesus' people will receive joy beyond understanding. God's joy, his approbation and his joy. And then we have the final story, right, where Jesus calls the, the end of history, the inheritance, the reward, an inheritance prepared for you from the foundation of the world. See, there's a place that has been prepared for Jesus' people that he's going to give them as a gift, an inheritance, a place of celebration and joy, a place of acceptance and approbation, a place of further fruitful service, a place of peace and justice, a place full of life, more abundant than we have ever known. And it's really one of the most important teachings in the New Testament that Jesus' return will mean the establishment of justice on earth. It will mean our resurrection from the dead. It will mean the end of trouble and sickness and sin and death. It will mean the restoration of the world as it was meant to be in the beginning. The return of Jesus is our great hope. It's our longing for the world to be put right You know, every cry of injustice, every tear, every moan and wail, every burst of anger that the world is not the way it should be, every ache and pain, whether mental or physical or relational or emotional, right? Every pain points to our great need for Jesus' return. The one who came and died for sin, the one who rose to conquer death, will not now abandon the world that he came to save, but he's going to finish the work that he started That's our hope. That's our joy as Christians right now, that that we have this hope of the world being put right, being put back to the way it was meant to be. Well, one day a division will come. There will be two groups of people that will face two very distinct ends, one eternal punishment and one eternal life. An important question to ask at this point is, is based on what criteria? You know, who's going to be on the left and and who's going to be on the right? Based on, we see in these parables, based on who you are as demonstrated in what you do. So notice, right? Notice first, the division is not based on the actions themselves, but on something more fundamental. Start with the obvious, the sheep and the goats. The sheep are put on the right. Why? Because they're sheep. That's what it says. He puts the sheep on the right. The goats are put on the left because they're goats. They are divided because of who they are, first and foremost. Same is actually true in the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. Uh, The wise virgins enter into the wedding feast. The foolish virgins are shut out. Uh, You might think, well, that's about their actions, right? Some were foolish, some weren't. Uh, But not the way the Bible looks at it, because as you read through the Scriptures, in Scripture, uh, to be wise or to be a fool has to do with who you are at your core. 
Wise or foolish actions flow from wise or foolish people. Or consider the parable of the talents. What's the difference between the two servants or the three servants? The first two, according to their master, are good and faithful. The third is wicked and lazy. The master is making a judgment not simply about their actions, but about their character, about who they are. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, this doesn't really help. Because what if I'm a fool at heart? I mean, what if I'm wicked and lazy? What if I'm a goat? What if that's who I am? What hope for me is there if I'm a goat? Well, here's your hope. Your hope is this, that according to the Bible, there was a sheep who suffered as a goat that goats might become sheep. When Jesus, the Son of God, came into the world, he was no fool. He was neither wicked nor lazy. He was the embodiment of wisdom and goodness and faithfulness. He lived a perfect life. He always did what pleased the Father. He faithfully served his Father with everything that he had. He loved the Father's people with tenacity. He cared for the widow, the sick, and the hungry. But he suffered the rejection of fools. He suffered the darkness of the wicked and the lazy at the cross. He suffered the curse of the goats in the Father's rejection. Jesus went to the cross as if he were a foolish, wicked, and lazy goat. So that we who really are foolish and wicked and lazy goats might have our sins forgiven and be called children of God, sheep of his pasture. See, when we turn to Christ, we're united to him. His death is counted as our own so that our sins can be forgiven, wiped out. And his life becomes our life so that we are renewed from the inside out. So we're no longer counted goats by the Father, but we're counted as sheep. And we are actually changed from goats into sheep. That is why in each of these stories, it it seems that works are so prominent. Because the works demonstrate our new status and our new nature. Our new nature is demonstrated by our actions. Sheep do sheep-like things. Who we are now, who we now are, is demonstrated by what we do. And so Jesus' sheep, like the wise virgins, will get ready. Jesus' sheep, like the good and faithful servants, will use what God has given us by investing our lives in service to him. Jesus' sheep will care for one another, right? loving Jesus' brothers and sisters, caring for the church of which we are a part. So if you've been united to Jesus by faith, his life is at work in you. And if his life is at work in you, then you will begin to live differently. Not perfectly, but differently. Again, we're not to compare ourselves to one another. We're not to compare others to ourselves. But if we belong to Jesus, his work will be evident in us. And this is why we say uh, that judgment is according to works. Not that judgment is based on works, but that it's according to works, meaning uh, judgment is based on the work of Christ on my behalf, his righteous life, and his shed blood for my sins. That's what my judgment will be based on. It'll be based on his work. But judgment will be uh, according to works in that it will be in accord with our works. Our works will be sort of the, the corroborating evidence God uses to show the world that we belong to Christ to show the world that we have trusted in him and have been transformed by him. 
So what's the criteria for judgment? Whether we belong to Christ by faith or not, but the evidence of that is the life lived for the good shepherd. Well, there's one more thing to point out before we wrap up, and that's the finality of this judgment. Uh, these stories tell us that there will come a day when the door to the wedding feast will be shut. The master will return to settle accounts, and the Son of Man will come in his glory. And on that day, there will be no more time to go and purchase oil. There will be no more time to invest your holdings. There will be no more time to love Jesus' people. There is coming a day when our bridegroom Jesus will come to take those who are ready into the wedding feast. When our master Jesus will come to see what we have done with what he has given to us. When the Son of Man will come in his glory and see what we thought of him in this life. That day is not yet. The Bible teaches that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to trust in Jesus for forgiveness and life. Today is the day to invest yourself in God's kingdom. Today is the day to love Jesus and his people. Today is the day to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. May God move us to that end. Let's pray. Our Father, by nature we are goats. By nature we are foolish and wicked and lazy. Father, we pray that you would give us a clear sight of Jesus, that we would believe in him, and that you would make us your sheep, that you would call us your sheep by grace, and that you would transform us into sheep, and that that transformation would be evident in our lives in a way that brings you glory and honor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.